people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Alex. Just me. Uh, for this interview, I'm joined today by Simon from Channel Rescue. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Great. So Channel Rescue was, uh, at least it, I think it was announced in August last year, August, July last year. Um, what is it that the organisation does and why was it founded? Channel Rescue. So um, in, well, last summer, uh, there was suddenly, well, there was a huge increase uh, in 2020 of the number of people um, crossing the channel to seek asylum. Uh, in the UK from Northern France. Um, and while there wasn't actually a huge increase in the number of people doing that, overall, there was a massive increase in the number of people doing it by sea, largely due, due to uh, an enormous amount of money having been spent on preventing people getting on lorries uh, in Calais. Um, so we had a situation where people were the, the focus suddenly shifted to coming across in small, uh, either powered craft, or even in some cases, we saw people uh, literally paddling across the channel um, in the kind of dinghy you would buy uh, in a sports store uh, on holiday. So that, that's, and that, that became a huge media story. Um, and it was felt, certainly felt by, by activists that um, the initiative on that story had gone completely to the far right. Um, that we had a situation where elements of the far right from Farage um, downwards, really, um, were competing with the Home Secretary to see if he could come up with the most vitriolic statement um, and, and, you know, invoking concepts of seaborne invasion and so on and so forth. So, OK, well, we need an initiative here. Um, there is clearly human rights need. Uh, there's potential, huge potential danger in people crossing the channel like this. Uh, concepts such as pushback um, were, were being invoked and it was like, okay, we, we, this, something needs to happen here. Um, and so we, we basically set up the idea of channel rescue and we were absolutely overwhelmed by the response. Um, essentially an idea kicked about within 24 hours on, on a crowdfunder, we had nearly £20,000. Um, so it was clearly an initiative that pe people, I think, had quietly out there been fuming about the way this issue had been framed and were yeah, very quick to put their hands in their pockets and support the initiative of us getting out there and putting a more human face forward on, on this issue in the channel. Yeah, I mean, that, that crowdfund, I remember it. I, I remember donating and a kind of me feeling that finally that there was some people who actually, I mean, were trying to do something and had like a plan and a bit of wherewithal to actually get it done. Um, it was like really encouraging to see after that, like you said, the kind of, it was kind of a rising kind of tension. It was like Britain first were doing these like migrant patrols and it was really kind of depressing, especially when you consider what happened in the Mediterranean um, a few years ago with the generation identity boat um, blocking migrants and things like that. Um, yeah, go on. No, I mean, just to sort of cut in there with the, um, so what we've been extraordinarily lucky to do is to sort of kind of a coalition here between people who've been active in anti-fascist and anti-racist struggles and pro-migrant struggles in the UK and, and a big activist base of people who've been out to Lesbos and the Aegean uh, and done work out there where the situation is far graver, it has to be said. And we have a situation there where organised pushbacks, where the uh, Libyan Coast Guard are effectively being funded by the EU uh, to, to breach human rights on a very regular basis where 
uh, activists have their boats impounded, where we've seen the absolutely horrific conditions uh, in Moria. Uh, we saw that a huge fire there, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's that situation there so this is very much like okay is this now coming here is this coming to the channel is this coming to the uk uh, and i think the rhetoric potentially points in that direction and so that's what that's how the struggle has come here you mentioned this thing about um about pushback and i wondered what what does that practically mean like home office pushback what like it seems i mean speaking as like a human being it seems almost uh, unthinkable that someone would try and you know, stop people from trying to get to safety um, in England and the UK. What what kind of things are the Home Office doing? At the moment, um, as far as we can see, at the moment, um, everyone is playing by the rules, but the re in the sense that if people make it to UK waters, um, that they are being towed in by border force, more so border force now. In the, in, in the initial stages of this, um, the RNLI were actually heavily involved, uh, volunteer lifeboat organisation. But more and more now, uh, with the appointment of a specific clandestine channel threat commander uh, and so on and so forth to monitor this situation, we're seeing border force in this rule. And, and while um, we're not actually out at sea at the moment, um, we are seeing um, that, that at the moment we're not seeing the kind of horrors that are happening in the Aegean and the Mediterranean. Um, however, the rhetoric is being ramped up um, now that the UK is out of the Dublin Accords, um, which which allowed the UK at one point to repatriate people who'd sought asylum here to their first point of safe entry. Uh, thanks to Brexit, we're out of that now, meaning that can't happen. And we're getting this, the idea is being floated in this very Tory kind of way where it's floated by journalists long before it makes it to, to a white paper. Um, we're getting the idea put out there that people should just basically, whether they're within one metre of the, the UK shore, they should be towed back to France and dumped there. Um, and while this, as I say, this isn't happening yet, but it's, the idea is definitely being floated as part of a hostile environment. Um, and that's why we think a human rights monitoring project in the channel is absolutely vital. The, some of the stuff that has been floated out there is really wild, like housing people on Ascension Islands, in, on oil rigs, this kind of like Australia style um, inhumane immigration kind of thing is, I f personally, I feel like we're just, I'm about to go and talk about it. The, the conditions at the barracks and the Penley camp as well seem to be an indication of where Priti Patel wants to go if she, if she got away. Like, she's a real extreme woman and um, we need to be really concerned about it, in my opinion. Yes, and, and I think uh, and what we've got, and, and I guess one of the things we had hoped to do uh, with the organisation is to interrupt this kind of tango between the far right uh, and, the, and the Home Secretary um, with, with this constant ramping up of rhetoric only in one direction. It's to try and pull the conversation back uh, motivate, it's, it's a well-worn phrase, but you know, to motivate those parts of civil society that um, aren't UKIP voters, effectively, um, and say, look, we have a voice. Actually, there's, there's no consensus in the country at the moment that we should be building a hostile environment for these people. And I think often with, with the weight of the media uh, on side and so you can often get the impression that, that the, the voice saying that we should be offering a humane environment here is, is tiny in a minority and actually I, I feel that often it's not and if we can we can organize to provide that voice and disrupt the consensus that we should be um, 
create a hostile environment, a deterrent environment, um, then we might be able to win this. You, you kind of raised this already, and it's something I wanted to get to. Um, this idea of the relationship between the government policies and like extra governmental far right activists like Britain First and these other kind of people. Um, I wonder if you could go, go into a bit, this a bit more. Like it seems like obviously there's not, it's not like an official or formal coordination or anything, but it does seem to be like migrants were uh, people being housed in like hotels in cities with lots of support structures near enough to um, like uh, NGOs and charities and things like that and activists. And it feels like the moving to camps in uh, rural areas or like away from cities is a part of that escalation. How do you think the kind of far right activity is fed into this kind of uh, this kind of change? I think I mean, I think it did. I think they were, it was quite a successful um, campaign. Obviously, it was also backed by the tabloids. Um, but you, you had a situation where people were the sort of classic far right grifting video um, of, of a hotel invasion. Britain first did one. Uh, interestingly, Nigel Farage, who I think at one point in in, in living memory was actually a, a politician, uh, is now very much uh, following the sort of Tommy Robinson mode of behaviour. So he's creating videos, trying to create viral content. Um, so Farage has done one of these, uh, slightly more genteel, but he's sort of done a hotel invasion. So that for a little while, and this would have been, yes, yeah, so a late summer um, last year, um, this was the, the MO of the far right, was to turn up at a hotel. Often these are these are rundown hotels, and of course because of COVID, they they were extraordinarily underpopulated. Um, so in some sense, it made a great deal of sense to to house uh, asylum seekers in hotels. Um, but they very successfully uh, created the impression that um, that people were being put up in five star hotels, um, at luxury at the taxpayers' expense, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, that opened the door for this uh, barracks solution. Um, which today was actually condemned by one of Theresa May's, uh, somebody who'd been a minister under Theresa May's government, as, as a deliberate deterrent. She's made it very clear that that's why the barracks situation came in, why Priti Patel introduced it, to pander to the, pander to the Tory base, to, um, it's a culture war, is to um, is, is effectively say we're going to punish these people for crossing the channel, because they are, while technically people are free to come and go from that accommodation, uh, they are under pretty heavy manners. Um, the accommodation isn't isn't great. Um, you know, the catering is not great. Of course, there's um, private contractors in there making money out of all this because why wouldn't there be? Um, so that that tango that happened there, I think, was quite successful on their part. And then they moved the focus of the struggle to the barracks. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's really hit home to me. The, the kind of people we're dealing with is that even in these horrendous conditions that people are now being housed in there's still activists going there filming people coming out of camps um i saw a quote um of some guy saying you know i can't go down i feel i feel safe going down out 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 these barracks because i'm being filmed i'm being harassed it's yeah truly really awful um yeah and, uh, the minister caroline Noakes, i think um we just got to show that an immigration minister in theresa may's government is now criticizing the tory government today so you can see how far things have developed already. Um, yeah, so just on the barracks, we, um, a couple of days ago, we saw really, you know, horrible scenes of a fire being started in uh, Napier barracks. Um, we don't quite know the situation around that, but it seems to me that it was a, a, a protest against the horrendous conditions. What has it been like in these barracks? I mean, 
Huh. Well, one of the interesting things uh, that certainly happened at uh, Napier Barracks in Kent um, is that the organisations, so the volunteer organisations uh, providing aid have been asked to sign non-disclosure agreements um, to, to not report on the conditions inside the barracks. And it's actually created something of a split uh, in, in the volunteer communities, uh, well, in amongst the volunteers doing things like, if you're not allowed to report on the barracks, do you want to go in there? And some of the bigger charities, and I, I'm not making any judgment about, you know, which is obviously, a, uh, you know, there's there's a debate there effectively. If you, if you go in, are you going to report what the conditions are? The conditions are poor. I think I think it's safe to say that the conditions are poor. Um, they were obviously uh, a, a place where COVID was going to run rife, uh, and indeed it has. Um, unsanitary, poor food. Um, and I think um, speaking to people about it, it's the limbo. It's the absolute um, lack of knowledge about what's to happen next. You know, am I going to be here for three weeks? Am I going to be here for three years? Uh, how does this process work? And, you know, very, very much, uh, I think it's in common with the prison process. I think you, you don't know what's going on from day to day. And this is obviously causing these people who've already seen an enormous amount of trauma, a lot of them. Um, it's causing them further mental health issues, um, and, and they're being and they're crammed in together behind barbed wire at the moment. Um, so as we can see, it's, it's not a long-term solution. I think it, one of the things that is good is a lot of pressure now. I think when you've got people from Theresa May's government coming out and condemning the barracks, there's now a lot of pressure to find another solution. How do you think we can? Because um, one of the problems I feel with this is that um, there's, a, there's a there's a large concentration of activisty lefty types in London and Brighton and Bristol, these barracks are not there, right? These are in uh, Folkestone and, and in Wales as well. How do we um, talk to, or how do we relate to the locals living there next to these places who uh, may have been, you know, appealed to by far-right activists, uh, otherwise don't want to have a, a like an asylum centre on their doorstep? I mean, I suppose to get into this, to talk to the, the struggle, I think particularly um, the struggle around Penale has been really interesting. Uh, not somewhere I visited personally, but I've talked to people who volunteer there. Um, so with the situation in Penale, quite different to, to Kent. So in Kent, we had a situation where there's a long history of far-right activity in Kent um, and, and around Dover particularly. There's been a, there's a history of, of, of quite... You know, a violent uh, struggle for control of the streets in Dover and Folkestone, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole history there. Penale, although uh, has a UKIP assembly member, uh, Neil Hamilton, in, in the area, not a very small, quite rural uh, setup. Now, in that situation, they, they basically had it announced six days before as a fait accompli that they were going to have a barracks site there. Um, locals set up a Facebook group. Um, very quickly, actually, in the Penale situation, the far right, or want of a better word, those activists, so people like Voice of Wales, uh, based Welshman, I quite like that one, but um, got involved very quickly and joined this um, group. And in that situation, they were able to motivate the locals out on a demo. Uh, it's a few evenings before anyone actually arrived at the barracks, which you find right in saying was the 10th of September, I think was when the first residents were put into the barracks. A um, few evenings before, um, they actually managed to persuade a sizable number of locals out onto the street 
um, uh, who sat down, blocked roads uh, of people trying to come in and, and refurbish the barracks ready for the residents. Um, that's quite a worrying development. And uh, local activists, so there are local left-wing activists um, who tried to organise a, who organised a, a welcome event. That welcome event um, was attended and to a certain extent disrupted uh, by the little veteran and a few people like that. Um, the legacy of what's going on in Penale. So lockdowns changed everything for everyone. So, but up until this lockdown, there were weekly demos at the gates uh, where the far right were pulling in numbers. Um, local activists tell me there's there's been a bit of a fissure in the sense that the local concerned residents, once I think they realised who they were cooperating with and what the politics uh, of, of these people were, not so keen to collaborate with them. However, uh, I mean, one local campsite uh, was apparently happy to offer free accommodation to anybody who came to protest at the barracks. So there is there's sympathy there amongst the local community and they were able to move in quite quickly. And the far right, I think for a while at least, gained the initiative there. And, and that's not taking anything away from any of the local activists, uh, anti-racist activists who put in loads of work there and done some fantastic stuff. But I think the far right did. Wary of that in Kent, um, that similar situation developing because Napier was announced then a week later um, and it, basically local anti-racist activists there organised a very successful uh, big demo on October 17th um, where approximately three to four hundred people and I would say a good 80% of those were locals from Folkestone, Dover, Deal sort of area um, came out demonstrating outside the barracks and the far right had planned to counter demonstrate it. Uh, they did, uh, but they only mustered 27 people. And you can see that they were visibly demoralized by that. And that although uh, there was a continuation of filming mild harassment outside the barracks, it did actually knock them back. Um, the fact that they, I think, I think realized that they weren't speaking for the majority of the people in the area. We should talk, uh, mention that Kent Anti-Racism Network, um, Kent Refugee Action Network as well, and um, some various local anti-fascist groups were all involved in that demo, is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I think this is um, sort of coming back to your earlier point um, about what can we do? Those of us who, who are lucky enough to, to live in lefty strongholds, um, what can we do? And it's, well, we have to support those people uh, financially, by traveling um, on social media. Uh, we absolutely, because there are, unfortunately, there are those people, those, those left-wing people upon whom this has fallen disproportionately. And that's why it's really important to be organizing from outside those areas. And obviously lockdown has made that a bit more difficult, but soon there will be more vaccine around, um, less, um, less restrictions on, on travel and stuff like that, but there will still be this situation and this situation isn't ending anytime soon. So it's really incumbent on anyone who is not in these places to be coming and supporting, I think. Cool. So you mentioned Dover, and there's been a kind of a recent history of like kind of far-right mobilization in Dover. Dover's a particular flashpoint because it's it's a I don't know, it's a it's not a left-wing area, let's put it that way. And it's on it's on the coast, it's a border town, as it were. Um what what has that history been in the recent years? In recent years. So, yes, I think it's interesting what you say about Dover. I think, um, and it's actually quite similar to Calais in lots of ways. I think it's something quite strange that happens to a town 
when 90% of the people there are only there to go through it. Um, yeah. I mean, Dover, I mean, there's, there's a sort of psychogeography of Dover uh, as a border town. That's why I think fears of seaborne invasion, um, I think, resonate with people. I mean, the first thing you notice in Dover is an absolutely massive castle looking out to sea. It's there. It's written into the geography of the place. Um, and so it is. And what's what happened in Dover, although the, the sort of the Dover saga mm -hmm. in, in recent years, um, I think really starting in 2015 um, around um, migrants crossing the channel, coming through the Channel Tunnel um, and so on and so forth, we saw pro-refugee and pro-migrant activists um, being, uh, being harassed, sometimes being harassed off the streets, having their stall shut down and so on and so forth. Um, there was a huge struggle um, in in the area, of course, with Farage running to be the MP of Thanet. Um, there, was a, there was a big struggle there where we saw uh, far-right activists such as National Front, Southeast Alliance, uh, stewarding his events um, with people protesting outside. And that culminated in a series of four or five um events where, where both fascists and anti-fascists travelled from out of town. Um, and it, there was a contest. Um, and it, yes, there was a sort of series of, in the end, I think the sort of the biggest contest was January. So quite recently, actually, five years ago, yeah. January the 30th or whatever it was, um, saw sort of five hours of hand-to-hand -hand fighting uh, through the streets of Dover. Um, and really ended up with, I think, about 60 of the far right getting sent to prison in the end, which did break the back of their movement for a while, but they, they'd very successfully mobilised around um, getting hundreds of people down there uh, and made it a flashpoint. This situation doesn't look like it's going to be ending anytime soon. Priti Patel has no incentive. In fact, it's her politics to be demonising migrants, to be um, having this two-tier COVID system where to, to keep people free from COVID, they you know, get put in these big overcrowded camps and they all get COVID and things like that. Um, in the long term, Channel Rescue is doing this kind of very immediate humanitarian work of saving people from you know, drowning <laughs> in, the, in the channel. Yep. What can we be doing, as anti, I'm speaking as anti-fascists now, um, it, it, to, to, in this situation? Because I think oftentimes anti-fascists have this kind of, rightly in many ways, it's a very narrowly focused politics. We're here to open up space for other people to do organizing, free from harassment from the far right and fascists and stuff, and to like work in solidarity with other groups who are harassed by uh, fascists. How can, how does anti-fascism relate to this kind of long-term broader work? Ah, good question. I mean, I think it's got to be woven into it, warp and weft. I mean, it is, this is an anti-fascist project. Um, it's very difficult. I mean, there is a, I mean, in, in, yeah, and it's very narrow definition, um, and, and no, it, anti-fascism very specifically is about confronting uh, those far-right groups who manifest on the street, and, and that's kind of, that was the work that was being done in Dover in, in the history I've just referred to there, you know, this is National Front, call a march, call a demo, we oppose, uh, we disrupt, and so on and so forth, but this new cycle um, where we're seeing um, the, as I say, this, this tango between the, the, the government and the far right, the, the, the YouTube grifting, the kind of the social influencing model of far right activism 
how do we disrupt that? Um, and it's, it is getting in there, creating our own content, um, trying to shift the debate in our direction. Uh, it's, it's more complicated. That's not to say there's not going to be a role for anti-fascism in it. And who knows, uh, come the summer, if the lid, you know, if, if the lid's lifted off, the vaccine's a success, will lockdown stops, to what extent will we pick up where we left off in 2019, um, start seeing large demos again? I mean, this is one of the things that's interesting is it's impacted on us as much as them. So there's two things that's, that have impacted on their organising in both Penale and and uh, and Kent have been lockdown and arrests. So they've been they've, they've bailed key organisers away, and they're also using the COVID regulations. The police, this is using the COVID regulations to prevent any kind of demonstrations. Um, now, at some point, that will cease, we presume, um, and and then I think we will be seeing a role, a clear role for. So I think a role for anti-fascists would be um, if civil society wants to come out. If church groups want to come out and demonstrate, um, you know, the, the, their support uh, for migrants, uh, a welcome event, then we need to be there to make sure that isn't disrupted, that people aren't intimidated um, from doing that kind of work. This, this, this thing about contestation and influencing, we've, we've talked about before, we, we write about in our book as well, that's going to come out, um, in that we, it's not enough to be... It's not enough to be solely deplatforming of shutting down. We need to be out there actively winning people over, arguing, making these really um, important arguments on the same platforms that they use, like YouTube and Facebook or wherever. Um, so yeah, that's that's a really really important point. I mean, uh, yeah, go on. I mean, I've, this is on a personal thing, not as channel rescue, but personally, I've always viewed anti-fascism in its very strict sense as holding the ring for the left. You know, we're there to make sure. And it's in very broad sense that the left can do its work without being disrupted. That's and that's it. And that's why it can be a coalition of all sorts of different um, ideologies. We need to let it do its work. We can't defeat these arguments solely from an anti-fascist perspective because that's a limited and only quite a reactive phenomena. But we have to be in there making these arguments ourselves uh, and facilitating people to do so, and not letting them be intimidated off the streets or off out argued or whatever. Not over swamped i think i guess with content i think part of the problem the issue with content at the moment I and mean, as you look at i mean i don't quite understand it when you look at somebody like steve laws for example or even active patriot i mean active patriot is is a tragic case you know he's he's, he's he really is i mean he's, he's he's a man with issues i think it's fair to say um and he's got and he basically spends his life getting thrown out of the same car park in Dover. <laughs> he sits in the car park, he films a boat coming in and he sticks it up on Twitter and then he gets thrown out um, by police who say, oh, hello again, you know, and that's, that's his life. And yeah, he's got like 40,000 subscribers. So you're sort of like, how does this work? Um, how can we compete with that? Um, what, what are we doing uh, in, in the meantime to, to galvanise an audience and galvanise uh, a common sense support? What we need is a host of people with no lives and issues of their own to sit in car parks and get thrown out day after day after day and build up a good subscriber base on YouTube. I think that's probably it. Uh, I think I know just the people. but um... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned this kind of influencer kind of dynamic. One of the kind of main influences in this whole thing has been this guy called The Little Veteran. Um, and he's been involved in this um, these kind of anti-migrant um 
campaigning and, and organising. Um, can you tell me a little bit about him and what he was doing in September? Um, so uh, Nigel Marchand, which is, is his name, is he's a Milton Keynes-based uh, far-right activist. Well, he would claim not to be a far-right activist, but all his stuff is, is repeated um, and amplified by the far-right. Uh, he's very active uh, in the Dover situation, filming himself on the beach and so on and so forth. Uh, he's back active again now. He was active in Penale, he was active in Penale as well. And only yesterday and the day before, he started releasing videos of himself uh, outside the barracks and outside hotels where people have been moved from the barracks due to COVID. Now, he did call a demonstration um, in Dover on the 5th of September, which I think he said was the, uh, the most important call out for Patriots since World War II. Um, I think it was a slight, it was a strap line for it. Um, and it, uh, I think the model is an interesting one in the sense that um, he, um, he did manage to call out about 130, 140 of his followers, but lots of other far-right organisations also said they were going to be there and do autonomous actions. So he actually summoned up sort of various people calling themselves Combat 18 or the Chelsea Headhunters or Pie and Mash to come to Dover for that. In the event, it was, as you might expect, massively policed. Uh, he was he was arrested, and the thing, I think possibly, so I think we're going to see a repeat of that again. I think in some senses, from his point of view, that was actually, despite his arrest, quite successful. So I can see that return, and again, we see this model of that becoming the YouTube video and, and creating this sort of cycle. Um, it's definitely something we need to keep an eye out, um, especially because I've, we haven't really talked about this much on the podcast, but anti-fascism is in a bit of a weird place in the UK right now and we need to start thinking about how we can rebuild and reorientate ourselves to the new situation. Yep. Um, all right, I've I got a couple of more quick questions and this, this has been a really good interview. Um, Labour, I'm not going to like go into it too much, but I feel like since Kia Starmers took over, they've kind of returned to the old Edstone days of, um, you know, a migration mugs and like a, a kind of aping the Tory rhetoric. Their, their recent campaign has been closing borders. What, how do we kind of like accommodate that? Because there's a bunch of people in the Labour Party who are good people, who are wanting to do work. At the same time, we need to be criticising this, I think. I, yeah, I mean, I think um, a lot of us joined in the Corbyn thing. Um, it was it was worth a shot. That's my personal point of view again. Worth a shot. Um, that hasn't transpired. I mean, I think uh, I think the struggle is outside the Labour Party now, um, personally. But you know, I don't know. You know, who can see all ends? Who knows where this will end up? Yes, it is extraordinarily disappointing uh, to sit there now and watch Keir Starmer followed around by Union Jack as as his rather forlorn attempt to, to win back the red wall or whatever it is he's trying to do. Um, uh, yes. And they are back to that. They think they, they, they are dancing to this tune. And I think it's a real shame because I, I do think when you do these initiatives, you realize that isn't the common sense at all. I think possibly if you're isolated in the Westminster bubble and you read the papers and that's your contact with reality, you might well think that 80% of the country are raving bigots. They're not. Um, and so, yeah, it's very disappointing to see that ground seeded so easily and so quickly. Um, 
and, and I think it will bite them. I don't think, I, I personally don't think the left can follow, you know, you can't do it better than them. This is their native terrain. Um, you know, you, you can't get in there and, and convince people that you're more racist <laughs> than the right and hope to win them over that way because um, it won't wash. You know, you're always going to come across slightly insincere doing that, hopefully. I agree. And um, I feel like also Tories being in government, they can actually do stuff and do the racist stuff. And people say, oh, you're doing the racist stuff. I like the racist stuff. I'll vote for you. Whereas Labour's just saying it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Finally, how can people get involved with Channel Rescue? Um, where can they go if they want to find out more about what you're doing? And how is I mean, how is yeah, okay? And how is how is lockdown? How has lockdown impacted your work as well? Lockdown has massively uh, impacted our work because um, we are unfortunately as a duty to, to be responsible there. Um, and while we've got you know a very dedicated group of people in Kent, um, we've already talked about how how Kent activists are very overstretched. Um, it's all falling on their shoulders. So. Yes, uh, that's made it very difficult to mount, mount, mount what we want to do, um, to be out at sea, to be on the cliffs watching. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah. but as I say, I think, I think this situation is going to resolve itself. I, th I see no reason why this spring and summer won't be very similar at the moment. And, and you know, I don't see any change. Uh, I don't see that uh, what we want and what all the refugee organisations want, save... We, we, we don't just intervene to make Channel Crossing safe. You know, we need safe and legal ways of applying for asylum in this country. I mean, in effect, the UK has an outpost in Calais already. Um, that is a piece of UK territory in Calais where they, it's, okay, why can't people claim asylum there? Why are they having to take these risks um, to get here to land on a beach? Um, in an effort to claim asylum here so i don't but I, under this government i can't see that changing so i think the situation so please have a look find us on twitter find us on facebook get in touch um and when when the lid's lifted on the the covid thing when lockdown ends we'll be being much more active and there'll be plenty for people to do uh great and we'll post all the links in our show notes as well where people can find you um this has been a really great conversation and i'm glad we did it um, thank you very much for your time. Here's a jingle from our network people. How can we imagine a world beyond prisons and police, borders and surveillance? Rust Belt Abolition Radio is an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Each monthly episode amplifies the voices of those impacted by mass incarceration and explores ongoing work in the movement to abolish the carceral state and racial capitalism. Tune in to Rust Belt Abolition Radio here on the Channel Zero Network and visit www.rustbeltradio.org to learn more. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. So that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what and you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. Thanks a lot and I will see you very soon. 12 rules for what?